You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, Station One listeners. Welcome to another episode. And this one, we have a great one for you. It's our music episode, and we are going to be looking at the 30th anniversary of the Bare Naked Ladies' very first album, Gordon. It's kind of interesting because we this is the first time we've actually spotlighted just an album. And it's going to be a lot of fun because there is a lot in this album that, you know, touched quite a few people, introduced the world to the Bare Naked Ladies and, you know, surprised me when I found out there were no ladies actually in the band when I was, you know, younger. So I'm going to be very curious to hear what the crew thinks about it. And a man who, you know, is bare and naked all the time. Let's welcome my cousin, Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy. Yes. Well, uh, I don't even know how you found out. Um, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I've, had to, I've had to shield my eyes a couple of times when you stood up. <laughs> you know the breaks on the show and everything. Well, you know we record we don't need pants pants are optional right so that's funny as heck but yeah it is optional and it's gonna be a ton of fun talking about this album and i think this is gonna be the first of us talking about some groundbreaking albums actually on the show because I, I hope so i mean i mean yeah we we have a lot of fun talking about music with the music crew um and uh um yeah it's going to be a great music-based show almost all together mm-hmm. we'll tell you about our little treat for you in the geek seat in a few minutes but we've got a great one for you and we definitely would love to hear from you guys at home please leave feedback at feedback at earthstation1.com Tell us what you guys thought. We actually got a piece of email talking about our Thor episode. We'll talk about that at the end of the show before we wrap it up. But we've got a great episode ahead of you, and thank you for listening as always. And also, we want to thank our wonderful and wonderful sponsor for tonight, Tifosi Optical. Tifosi Optical is a great bunch of folks in northern Georgia who make some of the best sunglasses out there. And, you know, with summer chugging along yeah it's the end of july but we've got a lot of heat and sun ahead of us and you know what tofosi optical is ready for it you can custom make your own sunglasses right from the colors of the frame colors of the lenses the style pretty cool they've got so much on their site just check out tofosioptics.com and when you do that please also put in the coupon code earthstation1 and when you do that you get 10 percent off your whole order not just one pair, but your whole order. And Tifosi Optical would be, you know, very grateful for you saying, hey, we heard you on Earth Station One. So it's pretty cool. So check it out, TifosiOptics.com. And now we're here with new friend of the show, director Ryan Suffern. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's been uh, too long. Uh, we should have had you on the station a lot longer than that. But uh, I uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us, uh, especially with your busy schedule. Uh, 
for those people who may not be familiar with what you do, um, a little bit about uh, your filmmaking. Yeah, so um, I've been primarily a documentary filmmaker now uh, for going on 13, 14 years. And so that's definitely what I've been if I'm known for anything, it's for making documentaries. And as of late, I've been primarily making music documentaries, either as a producer type or as a director. Um, music is a passion of mine. If I could probably go back in life or reincarnate myself, it would hmm. be as a musician. Um, but I'm pretty poor at playing guitar and didn't really have the patience for for learning it, but I, I love to play with music um, in filmmaking. It's in the, to tell stories in the music space. In addition, you just have such great baked in characters and, and stories inherent to the music industry and these amazing artists and their lives behind the music. Um, in addition to getting to play with the music and, and telling the tale. So um, yeah, of late, my most recent uh, music documentary and most recent uh, film that I was involved with, I co-directed and produced with Frank Marshall uh, a film called Jazz Fest, a New Orleans story, which Sony Pictures Classics uh, put out earlier this summer uh, in theaters. And that really was kind of celebrating with a jazz fest festival for those who don't know what jazz fest is it you know it's an annual festival it's been going on for over 50 years in new orleans it's arguably uh called one of the greatest music festivals in the world and we were using its 50th anniversary which took place in 2019 as the spine of telling not just the history of this remarkable festival but really the festival is a reflection of this incredible culture that is New Orleans and not just in the music, but also in the food. So much of what makes New Orleans such a unique and special place um, is seen on these festival fairgrounds for two weekends every year. And so we really used the festival to tell that larger story of where some of that music and culture comes from. So we, we ended up shooting that film on IMAX cameras because we always intended it to be a big screen theatrical experience. Um, and we mixed it with our go-to collaborators at Skywalker Sound with the, obviously the, the music being so important and just having the sound accompany uh, these larger than life visuals. So because of the pandemic, Sony ended up pushing the release date four times mm. uh, because we were, you know, we were all committed to this finding its way on the big screen and hopefully at a time when folks were finally going back to the theater again. So that came out earlier in the summer and now is available on video on demand and it'll, it'll be streaming eventually. Um, I'd say other recent projects I was involved with last year, we put out McCartney 321, which was a doc series on Paul McCartney with Rick Rubin uh, for Hulu, where was amazing. They, was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it was it was one of those experiences where again we worked with our friends at Skywalker Sound, and being at the sound mix, listening to Beatles songs and giving notes on. <laughs> 
maybe we could hear, you know, just a little bit more of, uh, you know, yesterday there or something. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a surreal, it's a surreal, you know, thing to find yourself in a, in a moment like that. And definitely kind of a signpost that I think I'm, I'm at least doing something right on some level. <laughs> Uh, to do that. So that was really a really, really cool experience, really just with Rick Rubin kind of guiding the conversation with Paul McCartney going through original, uh, recordings that had never left Abbey Road Studios. Um, and we were able to use the stems of these original recordings, most of which, um, Paul McCartney had never revisited, had never listened to since uh, originally recording them, you know, 50, 60 years ago. So, um, and it wasn't just the Beatles, but a lot of his solo work. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was a really um, fun series. Uh, also in the line of the music world, um, Frank Marshall directed and I helped to produce the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart for yeah, yeah. a couple of years back. Which going into it, I was kind of like, the Bee Gees, <laughs> you know. Uh, and you and a lot now, of people probably. Yeah, because I just they were a caricature to me, and I had no idea the wealth of amazing, amazing songs and what great songwriters they were, not just for themselves but for others. So much so that I've become, you know, I I proselytize about the Bee Gees now all the time. I remember we were in the midst of. Uh, editing it and i i just watched a rough cut and i was giving uh making lunch for my daughters and so i put uh saturday night fever uh on just to the the soundtrack and it's always a good sign when you're not exhausted by the music that you've been listening to ad nauseum while you're watching cuts and i put it on and i kid you not my my girls who at the time were probably five and nine ended up getting up from the lunch table, never heard this music before and started an impromptu dance party because <laughs> the music was so infectious. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's this, that's where it's at. There's this multi-generational, just um, something about this music that continues to work and, and an incredible story about brothers and family um, behind it. And, 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 you know, of a melancholic one at that in that Barry Gibb is the last of his brothers still standing. Um, and, and very much him looking back on, on what they, what they've accomplished. And he's got this incredible line towards the end where he says, you know, after we've seen this amazing journey, he's been on, I'd, I'd give it all up, you know, give it all back just to have them back. And um, I think that, I think that kind of emotional familial appeal really um, is why that doc was so well received. Um, it was a pretty amazing, you know, seeing that he was the last survivor and, you know, he lost three brothers and it was like, that must be crushing to him, you know, that, you know, after everything they've all been through and to be the last man standing in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest sibling in, in my family. I've got a younger brother and sister. And I think you inherently kind of take on a different role in your family when you're the eldest. And I can't even imagine 
just that alone, being the eldest and seeing your younger siblings all pass away before you, not to mention having your entire professional artistic career wrapped up with them as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, and then a couple of others we did, uh, I directed and produced a doc series on A&M Records that came out last year. Mm. Uh, A&M Records, for those who don't know, has put out some of your favorite music. You just didn't know it, possibly. Uh, <laughs> just some of the some of the most amazing artists, whether it's Joe Cocker or Cat Stevens to, you know, The Police and The Go-Go's and just a, a, a real amazing story of how these two mavericks Herb Albert and, and Jerry Moss, the A and M and A and M records, had, were able to kind of gate crash the music industry back in the '60s and really rewrite the rules and become probably the most successful, certainly one of the most successful independent uh, music labels in the business. Um, and then we, I, I helped to produce a doc series on Laurel Canyon. Uh, a couple of years back. And that really looked at the amazing wealth of artists that all resided in and around Laurel Canyon in the sixties uh, and seventies here in Los Angeles. And so that was a amazing experience to be able to, to go and interview quite a few of these artists that are still with us today. Um, and, but to also, because we did audio only interviews, we were able to really bring the voices uh, alongside those who are with us that could participate with those that, that aren't. And so you could have uh, Jim Morrison talking about the doors or Cass Elliott talking about mamas and papas um, right alongside, you know, Jackson Brown or David Crosby or whoever else we, uh, the many, many folks we interviewed for that. So, um, and then the most recent, I'm, uh, helping to produce a, a film on an artist, a Japanese American artist named Kishibashi that premiered at South by Southwest, uh, earlier this year. And if you don't know who Kishibashi is, I highly recommend checking out his music. Absolutely. I've seen heard... him twice. We're fans here. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. <laughs> I, uh... Well, Michelle and I, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to this one. Other Mike, you know, not so much. We'll see. <laughs> I'll wait and see till the film comes out. Then I'll, yeah, you know, yeah. I'll have to wait and see. Um, it's funny. The story on that one, I was listening, I think, to NPR. And I'm not sure if it was a Tiny Desk concert, or, but he did, he did something uh, on the radio that I just happened to catch. This is like probably close to 10 years ago. And he was promoting his debut record. And I'd never heard of the guy. Uh, but I, was, I thought the music was fascinating. And ended up, um, became my favorite record of the year. I just played that one nonstop and tried, you know, it was one of those where, you know, when you, you discover something and you get that rush of excitement every time you get to tell somebody else about it, like, <laughs> Hey, I've got this secret. You're going to love this, you know, and it, Kishibashi was that for me. Plus there's, you know, it's such a unique. Japanese uh, name that uh, I knew most folks probably hadn't heard of him. And, you know, fast forward eight or so years and uh, a friend from Lucasfilm says, Hey, uh, a buddy of mine is producing a documentary music documentary. I was wondering if you could uh, possibly give them a hand because um, they've never really done this before. 
and it's and I'm like, yeah, sure, of course, uh, I'd be happy to take a look at what they've got. And and she's like, yeah, it's it's some artist named Kishibashi or something. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd love to take a look. Uh, and that translated into me actually getting involved. And it was really one of those stories where, you know, in making documentary films, they're they are very much marathons, not sprints, and they can take many years at times to to make them. And so this was a, a process where these guys had been off making this thing for several years before I got involved. And it became a bit of a relay race where I could come in for that last leg of the relay to take the baton and help them get across the finish line. So I'm, I'm really excited about that one. It's a, it's a beautiful film with some incredible music. And I think you'll, Mike Gordon, you will like, uh, you'll like, well, I think, I think you'll both like it, but it, yeah, but yeah, this Mike, maybe not so much, you know. Well, no, 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 uh, I'm sure Mike, um, Mike, whose last name I don't, I don't know unless I look at the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, um, that other guy. It is, uh, you know, with all the questions around, um, you know, movies and uh, certainly the box office and theaters doing what they're doing and, and what's going on. A lot of questions there. But it seems to me that we are in a great age now of documentaries um, with all the streaming services that have uh, exploded over the last like just five years it seems like the documentary landscape is a lot different than it was. And you can speak to this than it was maybe even 10 years ago. No, absolutely. I think I got involved, you know, I happened to find myself, you know, getting documentary work and it wasn't intentional at first, but it did become intentional to lean into what I could see or, or was feeling like and experiencing firsthand that there was something happening in the realm of documentaries. And I think it was really about 10 years ago-ish where it was a confluence of a few things. One, you know, Netflix went to streaming. And when Netflix went to streaming, you'll remember, it wasn't like they were the content creating machine that they are today. Right. They put up a lot of titles of older B-list movies um, and tons of documentaries, mainly because the rights were available <laughs> for cheap, you know, for a lot of these titles. And all of a sudden, this new streaming site was populated by so many documentaries that you hadn't heard about because they weren't really available. And it wasn't like uh, Blockbuster Video probably had a huge... Uh, documentary section for you to go look at so once it had come and gone that was probably it for a lot of these titles you also had hbo making a commitment to their uh hbo docs in and making original docs uh or acquiring them i think it was like every sunday night they would put out a new documentary uh or monday and and then espn also did 30 for 30 to celebrate their 30th anniversary they commissioned these 30 films and really recruited, you know, some amazing A-list talent, many of which who weren't documentarians, but narrative film and TV makers to, you know, tell their favorite sports story or, uh, of sorts. And it was actually through one of those Frank Marshall got solicited to direct uh, one of the films that 
ended up being called Right to Play and brought me on board to to edit it and help them to film it and make it. So um, you started to see more and more outlets then. Um, and these films that were being made weren't traditional kind of homework assignment slash eat your broccoli <laughs> sort of films. Um, it, it helped incredibly that HD digital technology had, you know, proliferated the industry. And so you could get high quality looking uh, material without the barrier uh, of entry that of just what it used to cost to, to make things look so great. Um, and I think all of those things at the same time, and really an appetite, I think there's a huge appetite that we see on the internet, we see it through YouTube, we see that, you know, people want and in desire to see quote unquote real. Um, and I think that that's really led to this renaissance that has certainly, I think, only grown even more, especially when we see the su- success of like true crime doc series right. that become, you know, the thing that everybody's talking about on social media and in ways that you, you don't get necessarily with the, the their fictional counterparts. Yeah, I definitely see the rise uh, with true crime docs, but also, I mean, I've always really been interested in, in specifically docs about musicians and music. Um, I mean, I was a sucker for those uh, VH1 behind the music like things that they used to run. Totally. <laughs> so, so, um, and I just feel like a lot of these are, you know, a lot more serious, but they're, they're basically extensions of that where you find out uh, the whole story about how things really work, um, and how musicians work. Um, and, uh, it's, it's to me, it's really eye opening that you can, that you can tell those stories. Yeah. I think the, cause I loved those VH1, uh, pieces as well. Like being such a, a music fan, uh, to, to learn those stories was, was fantastic. I think, what what became of those those that they started to become kind of formulaic though yes. in their approach and what's exciting <laughs> now is to really see these stories and not just in the music doc space but documentaries in general embracing being a piece of cinema being a film like i look forward to the day where the lines are blurred so much because whether it's recreations and how much of what you're seeing is actually you know, documentary in the sense that you're actually pointing a camera at something happening in real time, as opposed to doing what you do in the scripted arena, which is, you know, lights, camera, action sort of stuff. Um, And at the same time, you see a lot of, having just seen the Elvis film not that long ago and seeing Bars Lerman um, incorporating documentary, you know, real footage Mm -hmm. into the film, uh, I look forward to the day where we just call them films. And I think we're, we're getting closer and closer just when you go on your streaming platform of choice and, you know, one thumbnail is right next to the next thumbnail. And it doesn't matter if it's a documentary or doc series or a narrative series or a movie that just, you know, played in thousands of movie theaters. Uh, so that I think that that's exciting. I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't necessarily like to, suspend disbelief when i sit down to watch something i do like things that are grounded in reality even if they're 
incredibly fictional, but still have that sense of, I don't have to just check, you know, at the door, the idea of what I find entertaining in the worlds that I want to, uh, to be entertained by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and these stories that you're telling now, uh, are they, uh, like how much uh, influence do you have on, on choosing which ones you work on and which ones you don't? Like, I mean, you mentioned that the, the Bee Gees one was like, I'm not really sure about this one, but um, like, do you, are these, are some of these, are you, are, would, would some of these be your babies, so to speak? Or they become your uh, babies, right? They all become your babies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, you know, some are forced adoptions. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, I mean, I so I out of that first collaboration with Frank Marshall making that documentary, we decided, hey, let's keep we're both enjoying kind of playing in this this sandbox together. Uh, for those who don't know, Frank Marshall is produced, you know, some of the biggest movies and movie franchises of, uh, you know, of the ever. industry ever. You know, <laughs> yes. ever. Uh, and so. He's, he's, even though he had produced an executive produced some documentaries, this was his first foray at the time into directing. And at times it was just him and me in a room in an edit room, you know, cutting a film. And I think there was something really attractive to him, uh, being so used to hundred to $200 million budgets and all of the, cooks in the kitchen and the personalities involved to to be able to do such a storytelling in such a guerrilla style fashion and so uh we started a documentary division for his company the kennedy marshall company which for those who don't know who his wife is it's kathleen kennedy who who's responsible has, for the other half of all the blockbusters <laughs> out there <laughs> yeah uh you know, frank and kathy uh, co-founded Amblin with Steven Spielberg back in the 80s. And now Kathy um, is the head of Lucasfilm and produces all the Star Wars content. So some pretty big, you know, heavy hitters in the, the world and realm of producing. And so we started a documentary division at the Kennedy Marshall Company, uh, Division of One, which was me. And, <laughs> um, you know, I... I started to learn what it would take to be kind of wear the hat of production executive type alongside, you know, what I could do in the documentary space, which was why it was attractive to me was that I could edit, I could shoot. Eventually I could also produce and, and direct as well. Um, and, and we kind of grew it from there. So to answer your question, I, you know, very early on, it was definitely, this was what Frank wanted to do, or here were here were projects that were uh, presenting themselves that were kind of given to me to run with, uh, and that component never went away. But as I got more versed in what it takes to set up a project, what it takes to you know get it financed or sell it, or commission it, um, I was I was very much out there looking for my own projects to bring to the company, to bring to Frank, to be involved with. So a bit of both. Cool. Cool. All right. And I should, I should add, I decided after we finished jazz fest before it came out, um, that it was probably time for me to, uh, to branch out. I finally got into the director's guild 
okay. and the Producers Guild, nice. uh, which had been longstanding goals of mine, and found myself having helped grow this doc division uh, in a way where it was really competing for a lot of my time to be able to to wear that production executive hat, but also be a producer and director. Um, and really, my passion lies in in wanting to be a filmmaker and, and actually tell the stories. Um, and so that's what I'm pursuing now. So it, they're very much more my babies of choice mm-hmm. uh, these days. Uh, but, you know, this daddy's got to get paid. So sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Sometimes you're, maybe you're not as picky, but I, I try. At the end of the day, I, I didn't do I didn't get involved in doing this, uh, you know, because it's the easiest way to make a living. Um, <laughs> and so if I don't like what I'm working on, I'm probably not going to work on it very long. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, certainly everything that's been coming out has been pretty amazing. And uh, I look forward to seeing uh, what's next. Um, but now that we found out, like, some of the things about what you've been doing, projects that you've recently come out with, let's find out what you're passionate about. Mike, I think he's ready for the geek seat. I think he's ready, uh, as ready as you can be, right? Well, I'm thinking he might be ready, but, you know, he could just hum a tune or something to, you know, (laughs) make his way through it. It should be pretty cool. All right, Ryan, you ready for your first question in the geek seat, sir? I think as ready as I'm ever going to (laughs) be. Okay. What was your favorite geek out moment? Um, You know, I've been very blessed in the geek out world of things uh you know as mike other mike can attest uh i i come from uh a history of no connection at all to hollywood or filmmaking and so i'm i it's not lost on me a lot of the folks i've had a chance to work with and meet and um but i'd say Probably, you know, U2, when I was a kid, uh, the band U2, were kind of the original, planted a seed in my head to, I want to do something big. I want to be creative. You know, at the time, it was like, I want to, I'm going to pick up a guitar and I'm going to learn how to be, I'm going to learn what the, to do what the edge does, you know. And so in high school... In the early 90s, U2 is the biggest band in the world, and that really stuck. Um, and eventually, I put the guitar down and picked up a camera and was much better at it. And so I got to help produce a, a film called Satan and Adam, which was on a, a documentary called Satan and Adam that was uh, originally on Netflix. And U2 plays a crucial um, story point in in the film. And it was actually what attracted me to get involved with the project. And it took me many, many, many months, but I finally got the edge to sit for an interview. And after we interviewed the edge, I got to give him, we interviewed him at the Kennedy Marshall offices. And then I got to give him a little tour of the offices, which were pretty cool. And I couldn't help it. And I normally don't ever geek out like this, but I had to tell the edge that it was because of him and his band that, you know, there's a direct connection with them and what I was doing for a living and that he had inspired me to pick up a guitar and 
eventually turn it into a camera. Um, and I usually don't ever, ever do that, but I thought, you know, it's not every day you get to interact with one of your heroes in the capacity of, you know, more than, Hey, can I get an autograph or uh, a photo sort of thing? Though I did get a photo too. (laughs) (laughs) You would hope you would, Uh, you know, you're allowed, you're allowed. What was your most disappointing geek out moment? Uh, so I want to be careful in answering that one because (laughs) I can definitely tell you, but I do know that the internet is written in ink. So I don't want to say, uh, explicitly, but it was definitely working with an actor who I had really looked forward to working with and was somebody from my childhood that made a significant impression on me. And when Mm. I found out I was going to get, this goes back to my set PA days. So you can narrow it down to my IMDB page with my set PA. (laughs) And this individual was just a real letdown, serious, serious letdown uh, to work with. Incredibly disappointing. And yet you know, through circumstance ended up translating into eventually me getting, you know, several steps removed, but a significant step that led to me getting a job working with Steven Spielberg as one of his assistants. So I'm still grateful for it, but it was definitely a letdown. What a mixed blessing. Oh yeah, yeah totally. What geeks you out the most? I get, I geek out the most. When I find myself either on set or in the edit room and it's working and we're, I'm looking at a monitor and it's either a monitor of something we're filming in real time, or I'm looking at the monitor with uh, my editor and, you know, we're taking these pieces and we're, we're either capturing them in the camera or we're slamming them together in the edit and it's working and it's just, I, it's euphoric, you know, it's like a drug. Um, and it definitely is an experience. I spend most of my time and energy working to get the privilege of getting to do that experience. Mm. That makes sense. Absolutely. Oh, totally understand that. I completely understand that. What turns your geek off? the part that I have to spend all of the time. To <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to think I'm, I'm pretty decent at the hustle. Um, I think what I may lack in artistic talent, I, over some of my peers or contemporaries, I might be better at some of the, the hustling of it all. Um, but I don't really enjoy that part of the process at all. Um, and it's, so far removed really from the uh, the act of storytelling and, and filmmaking and yet such a necessary component uh, at the end of the day to get people to open up their checkbooks or ultimately you know use their distribution methods to get the get the stories out there that um, it's often a, a geek off turn off no totally makes sense to me. 
I totally understand that completely. Let's take a look, different look now. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? What fictional character? Is it okay yes. if I've already met the fictional character that I would well, like to meet the most? <laughs> well, dude, that's totally awesome. Is that allowed? Yeah, of course. All right. Um, yeah, because this one's a no-brainer. I already referenced Frank Marshall and, and uh, the fact that I was a Steven Spielberg's assistant. What the bridge between the two is while I was Steven's assistant, uh, one of my roles was to be his, uh, to have a video camera and shoot behind the scenes on his films, which was, you know, for me, when I found out that that was a job, part of the job, I was like, that's, (laughs) that's insane. I get to do that, you know, and that is essentially the beginning of my documentary career, um, documenting Steven Spielberg. So, um, I left working for Steven after working on three movies with him. And I point blank asked him, Hey, are you going to make Indiana Jones for this summer? Cause I'll stick around longer if you're going to. Uh, and he's like, no, the script's not ready yet. And I said, okay. And of course they, I hear, you know, several months later that they greenlit it to go into production the following year. And I was like, damn it. I never really. <laughs> Indiana Jones was the be all end all the films and the character. I mean, it was as, as a kid, you know, with my best friend, we'd play in the backyard and it, we'd take turns who got to be Indiana Jones. You know, it was just the cat's pajamas. <laughs> um, so I got the call after they greenlit it. And mind you, I'm writing a script for a project that I had, pitch Spielberg uh, when I left. And so I felt like that was, you know, me moving on to become the filmmaker that I wanted to become, or hopefully. And they called me to come back, not as an assistant, but just the onset videographer, documentarian um, to work on Indy four. And I thought, uh, this is, this is literally having my cake and eating it too. So cut to day three of filming. I will never forget. Steven saying, Hey, Ryan, I want to introduce you to Harrison. And it's Harrison Ford's first day in as Indiana Jones. And he's, you know, in the outfit, got the hat, jacket, whip, everything. And Steven Spielberg turns to Harrison Ford and says, Harrison, this is Ryan. This is my guy. Her- uh, Ryan, it's Harrison. And I'm like, this is, this is stupid. This is so stupid. <laughs> Um, I'm meeting Indiana Jones and Steven Spielberg is introducing me to him. Oh, that is awesome. That is, that is yep. awesome. Can't beat that. Nope. Nope. I think the interview's over. That's it. Can't beat that. <laughs> it's all downhill from here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what fictional character would you not like to meet, though? What fictional character would I not like to meet? Yeah. Oh. In movies? Or just movies, fictional... TV, life, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm leaving that one up to you. This is your interview. Don't I like <laughs> um, anybody from the show Lost? Because I hated that show so much after the third season. I'm just going <laughs> to. <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
it's not as specific, but it just shows if you were involved with that show, you, it, there, the disdain continues to this day um, <laughs> for wasting my time. Clearly, that's that fair. doesn't count. Does that count? Yeah, okay. yeah sure. That's fair. That totally counts. <laughs> that totally counts. Absolutely. Just, you know, if you see some familiar people when you get on an airplane, then you just worry, you know, <laughs> like, ah, damn, these guys again. Yeah, right. What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? So I'm watching The Offer right now. Have you guys seen The Offer? I've the, heard of it. I haven't got a chance to watch yes. it yet. It's the Godfather. Awesome. It's the it's, yep. it's making of the Godfather. The story behind the making of the Godfather. Now, the Godfather is my favorite movie of all time, and one of my first favorite, one of my first favorite documentaries um, that really I thought changed how I looked at documentaries was the Kid Stays in the Picture, mm. which was based on the. Um, Autobiography by Robert Evans, Robert who Evans used to run yeah. Paramount, uh, and was the uh, you know the head of the studio at the time of The Godfather and Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown, and he's got he that that's a fascinating fascinating story. His I highly recommend checking out his autobiography on um, the the audio version because he narrates it. He's got this great great um not accent but just his voice his deep voice and he's like um and he's like his it all starts the the memoir starts with you know i i believe that luck is equal parts opportunity meeting preparation and i've always loved that quote that idea that um you know, yeah, there are people who are incredibly lucky, but I think a good chunk of them, and I consider myself one of them, is, you know, being prepared for that good fortune to come your way and not just sitting around waiting for it. Um, and that preparation also means being able to recognize it and pounce on it and take risks to get it um, and get out of your comfort zone. And, and so I love that quote. It's a quote I live by, but he also, he's like, uh, he so many times in the book, uh, and again, it's why it's worth listening to or just watching the, the offer because he's a, one of the main characters in this, uh, new fictional series, uh, on Paramount. Plus he's like, if he's asked a question about something, he's like, you bet your ass I did. You bet your ass I did, you know, with his deep, you know, whiskey drinking or scotch drinking, you know, cigarette smoking voice. Um, so, yeah, that's that would be my favorite. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. You bet your ass. That's my favorite quote. Oh, I kind of figured it would be. <laughs> it's an offer I couldn't just refuse either. So it's perfect. What is your ideal geek occupation? Well. My ideal geek occupation is being the director of making films. Um, I, 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 when I get to find myself in that capacity, I pinch myself that I get to do that for a living. Um, and that 
I can be at the helm of no matter how many people it is, whether it's just a handful or like on Jazz Fest, we had a crew of, I think, 36 people, which was by far the biggest thing I kind of shot in real time. And then only so many more people involved in the post process. Um, and the fact that I, I'm at the helm of this thing and get to bring together in this collaboration, all of these great people, hopefully, you know, I can be the inspiration to bring the best out of them and, and lead us into the battle of, you know, doing something that's fun, that we're passionate about, that we care about, um, that ultimately will translate into something that's a compelling, engaging, entertaining watch. And um, that, yeah, that's my, that's my favorite geek out occupation. And I, I continue to chase it. Totally awesome. That is, I wouldn't expect anything less. I really wouldn't for that answer. But let's hear what you think about what geek occupation would you not like to do? <laughs> well, um, well, look, filmmaking is a collaborative uh, medium. And so it's inherently dependent upon so many folks doing so many things. And I'm always a fan of working with people who are better than me at whatever it is their role in the process is. I think uh, probably my least favorite would be, now if it's a geek out, sorry to step back, is it like, is it within the realm or of what the geek out is? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's completely up to you. We leave these things up to you. Okay, I I definitely wouldn't want to be the production accountant on a on a movie. <laughs> that whilst important to know how things are being spent and where, that would probably be something uh I might not be that bad at cuz I'm decent at math and and keeping track of stuff, but feels incredibly devoid of any creativity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Creative but accounting only. is not something that's usually encouraged. <laughs> yeah. Excel, Excel spreadsheets and <laughs> the like are, you know, I, I get tiresome of uh, just getting it so that the sums all line up. You can get a column to, you know, get the totals and whatnot. Um, yeah. Production accountant. No offense. No. To any production accountants I've ever worked with or be hiring in the future. <laughs> of course. No, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense, actually. All right. Ryan, are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? Okay. All right, dude. What is your ultimate geek fantasy? <laughs> I, you know, I think... I, my ultimate geek fantasy probably would be to go back to what my original fantasy was. Sorry if the uh, the puppy is uh, barking in the background here. <laughs> um, Not a problem. My ultimate geek out fantasy for me is to probably go back to what I originally thought I was coming out to Hollywood, to Los Angeles 20 years ago, actually, this month. This is my 20th anniversary of living in L.A., which was never 
ever the plan uh, at the time, was I wanted to make movies. I, I, I thought I want to direct a movie. Um, I, I had no idea that documentaries were going to present themselves to me um, in the way that they have. And I, like I was saying before, I do think films are films, whether they're documentaries or narrative, but I really want to find myself at the helm of a movie, of a narrative movie. And I think I, you know, to, if it's the fantasy, it's a big one. <laughs> Let's just <put> it <laughs> and I'd love for it to be a big one that isn't necessarily part of the kind of franchise fair that is so dominating um, the, the theatrical marketplace these days that studios have really doubled down on. Like I get really excited by, you know, the kind of movies that uh, Christopher Nolan is making, even though he's delved into that with uh, the uh, Dark Knight trilogy. Um, I, you know, seeing the Oppenheimer, and just going, holy crap, how do you get all of these guys to work with you on this fascinating story? Um, well, it's because you're Christopher Nolan. <laughs> so I, uh, not that Christopher Nolan's like my favorite director, but I do really like his work. I'd like to find myself in a, in a similar situation someday, somehow. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, Ryan, I've got some amazing news for you, my friend. You've made it through the Geek Seat. Congratulations. Huzzah. Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $68.04. Wow. Yeah, it's the, it's, 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 it's the family discount. Uh, so, <laughs> um, might as well tell them there's a relation there, guys. Come on, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, you, you, could, you could hint at it, you've been hinting at it all night. So. I, I hinted at it earlier, and I was like, uh oh, I don't know if this how are we playing this? Well, you know, I mean, we can say, look, we can say in full disclosure, you're my cousin, right? So, uh, I, hey, I think people like family, but I, I realize actually, and I'm you know cut this out or leave it in uh, up to you but uh you didn't introduce me as your cousin so i thought oh okay i, I didn't i didn't <laughs> well we can because honestly tell here. we can honestly tell people also there was no nepotism at all in the <laughs> questions yeah he waited he waited uh 20 years to have me on the like i cannot longer longer than the podcast existed he's been waiting <laughs> <on now. laughs> i uh he, he does that sometimes you know i yeah I, you know I, I get around to things slowly but surely um but uh no, I am. Uh, it is embarrassing that it's been this long, but uh, I'm glad that uh, this finally worked out where we could have you on the show uh, again. A tremendous respect for everything that you're doing. Uh, and I can't wait to see what's next. Where can yeah, people we'll find get... where can people go and find out what, what you're doing and what you're up to? Is there a place online they can check out or IMDb? Yeah, well, I, you know, so Ryan Suffern dot com. OK, is a, you know, as a. Is a good kind of launch point into a lot of the stuff that I've done um, with a little tease for some of the stuff that's coming. Um, you know, oftentimes it's until we have the ability to kind of announce to the world what it is, kind of have to keep it under wraps. Sure. And so we've got a few of those percolating right now. But uh, but to go back to your 
your generous compliment, Mike, and whether you keep this in or not, I'll defer to you. Uh, you know, you and Billy were always filmmakers uh, in our family, you know, certainly in the Keelhorn side. And I never knew or understood what the hell you guys were up to. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I was always envious uh, of that passion that you guys had for filmmaking at such a young age when I had no understanding of what that even meant at all or any, you know, desire to do so myself. Uh, Cause I came to this much later, um, not until after college that I decided to try to jump into this. So to get that compliment from you, uh, I'll say really, really means a lot. And I appreciate that you're out there and enjoying the stuff that I'm making and, you know, keeping an eye from, from the other side of the continent. Absolutely. And, you know, when you do have something else to talk about, you have an open door to come back anytime. I'm going to take you up on it. I'm going to think of some better geek out stuff for this. What do you do? What do you, yeah, what do you do if you have a, a repeat? Do you do repeats? No. Uh, we don't usually do the geek seat again, but uh, yeah, we usually just chat. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, we'll leave that entirely up to uh you as far as uh, next time i'll come back with some uh, i've got there's there's some other decent geek stuff to share at least uh it doesn't need to be a part of the you don't uh, even have to talk about geek stuff we just like talking to you so it's okay (laughs) it's it's a cool thing absolutely absolutely ryan thanks so much for joining us we really appreciate it mike squared thanks for having me not a problem let's take a quick break and we are going to be looking at the 30th anniversary of the Bare Naked Ladies album, Gordon. Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. We've got a couple new movies in theaters this weekend, the first of which is DC League of Super Pets. Which, on the one hand, I love anything to do with superheroes, be it Marvel or DC, but this one looks like it's aimed a little bit more towards younger viewers. Again, nothing wrong with that. Um, I think it's great to get kids into geek and superhero stuff, and if a movie about the pets of superheroes is a good gateway for them, I think that's awesome. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to rush out to theaters to see it, but I'll probably catch it when it's on streaming, watch it with my daughter who loves animals, so she'll probably think this is fun. I'm more excited about the movie Vengeance, which I hadn't heard about until a couple weeks ago when I watched the trailer. And it's a dark comedy about a journalist and podcaster who goes to Texas to investigate a death that happened under mysterious circumstances. And it's written by and stars BJ Novak. I think that this one looks really intriguing. I like dark comedies that are able to blend some humorous moments with a really interesting mystery. This looks like one that I might go ahead and check out in theaters. I also really want to get caught up and watch the movie Nope. I've heard that it's not necessarily a super scary horror film, and I'm really intrigued by the premise, and I think Jordan Peele is awesome, so I want to go ahead and try to get out to see Nope in theaters as well. So we'll see what I end up going to this weekend, but... It's nice to have lots of choices. And if you're trying to get caught up on all these streaming services shows that have been coming out this summer, 
you better work on checking those off your list because we have a whole bunch that are coming out in August. And one of the ones I'm most excited about and intrigued is Sandman. I'm not super familiar with the source material for this, but I think the trailer and the concept sounds super fascinating. And what I love about Netflix shows like this is that even if you're not familiar with the source material, the TV series can bring in a whole new group of fans. And I would like to check out some of the original material too now that I have heard about the show. So I think it's great to always find ways to bring new fans in. And that's it for this week's Box Office Buzz. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, uh, be sure to check out my blogs over on the ESO Podcast website. So how do we describe this show? Like, what's really going to grab people's attention and make them tune in? Nerdgasm for your eargasm? What? The space must flow to be in the know. Um, Don't be a willow. Grab your pillow. But that one doesn't even make sense. All right, stop. Snag a seat and listen. The nerds are back with the brand new edition. No! Uh, okay, then. The Blurred Nerds Podcast. France raves reviews recaps and other bits of random fandom well see that's perfect you should have just led with that one resistance is futile listen to the blurred nerds podcast right meow fine make it so hi hi green and good ladies we came to london for the pizza we're staying for the burgers the lights are on Sanctioned events in Nathan Phillips Square because, according to Mayor June Rollins, their name objectifies women. Now, here are some guys who have won the Casby Award for favorite KU group. They're outselling Michael Jackson at the downtown HMV, and yet, they're, because their name objectifies women, it makes no sense. None of their songs objectify women, none of their attitudes objectify women. These are the nicest guys you could want to be. that we we may not necessarily have, uh, have acquired this early in our career and it's obviously made a lot of people out in uh, across the country aware of who the bare naked ladies are um, it's also made a lot of people down in the united states aware of who the bare naked ladies are as well which is great for us in this store which i think is a bit of a barometer for uh, for music industry sales across the country but in this store on young street yes uh, this independent band the bare naked ladies um, available only in cassette right now uh, is outselling bands like um, Michael Jackson and U2. Get tough now! Hi there. Hi, how are you? My name's Ed. This is Tyler. This is Jim. 
That there's Andy, that's Steve, and we're bare naked ladies, but we want to be Bon Jovi. When I was born, they looked at me and said, What a good boy, what a smart boy, what a strong boy. When you were born, they looked at you and said, What a good girl, what a smart girl, what a pretty girl. We got these chains hanging around our necks. People want to strangle us with before we take our first breath. Fed up change, better stay in the same but well, we called the album Gordon instead of something pretentious like, you know, the unforgettable fire or the, uh, uh, the burning shirts on Mark's back because uh, we could call it Gord for short. The song is the cross that I It started as a bit of a mistake, actually, just because uh, we thought, well, we, we wanted to name the album after you. Like, you know, you, the album listener, the consumer. Uh, we thought, we thought, okay, well, what's, what, what, what is their name? Well, uh, Gordon. Come away from the S for S one W's. On time, because he pumps the rhymes a hard rhymer. On time, because he pumps the rhymes a hard rhymer. Hi there, how are you? Very good ladies, we came to London for the burgers. How are you doing? We're staying for the pizza! You can be my uncle on You can follow me wherever I go. Be my, be my, be my, be my uncle on Isn't it beautiful to see two people so much in love? Naked eyes, two virgins, hand in hand, and 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 glove. Well, now that I'm far away, it doesn't seem to me to be such a pain to have you hanging off my. Do you know if the song that the bare naked ladies did in Toronto? Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, is it something mine? Be my Yoko. Be my Yoko. Oh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Did you actually hear it? Yes, it's great. <laughs> I liked it. Sean brought the tape to me, and we're listening and we're laughing like crazy. So, <laughs> um, wasn't there another song, something about money that they made? You know, it's great. Great if stuff. If I had a million dollars. Oh yes. And if I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. Like buy a cake car, a nice reliant automobile. If I had a million dollars, I'd buy in love. If I had a million dollars, I'd build a tree fort in our yard. If I had a million dollars. Hi there. Hi, how are you? 
right, bare naked ladies in London for the burgers, stand for the pizza. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming. Rocky hey. Road, Rocky Road, Rocky Road. Road. We have a wonderful album. It's called Gordon. Buy one for your friends, buy one for your kids, and buy one for Spark. Climb down three flights to the street lights in the bar fights. We're just taking in the sights. I hope tomorrow that I wake up in my own bed. Welcome back to our station one. Now it's time to get your musical caps on and let's go up to Toronto and let's look at the Bare Naked Ladies, which is celebrating their 30th anniversary of their first release, Gordon, which is in some ways of a lot of people, a true classic album. And it's going to be a ton of fun to talk about tonight. And certainly, Mike, cer- certainly Mikey, got a cla- certainly got a classic name to it. I will say that. Oh, of course. I figured you'd be into that, you know, by the name of it. And this was your first time actually listening to the whole CD complete. Uh, yeah, I've uh, listened to the album and tracks here and there and familiar with a lot of the songs on here because, you know, there was a lot of hits uh, generated from this album. But this is the first this was the first week that uh, I took and I just listened to the whole thing start to finish. So that was a pretty cool experience. But um uh, and yeah, that came out, uh, we are, we are on top of it, Mike, because we are almost, this is going to be released almost to the day, July 28th, in 1992, when this, when this album came out. Uh, so that's, we are not usually that spot on with our anniversaries. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, a couple months ago or in the next couple months or, but now this time I think we did pretty good. Yep. And we've got our music crew here to talk all about it. We've got Michelle here. Hello. Howdy. Uh, and we've also got Ricky Zero. Hello. And joining us from Chicken Town, we've got Cornflake here. Oh, hello. Yeah, there was a little like, uh, yeah, Kevin mentioned, uh, you, if you do a show about bare naked ladies without Cornflake, uh, she's going to burn down the station. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we were he, like, he, okay. he knows far that. too he much about me and my pyrotechnics. <laughs> <laughs> But we're very thrilled to have you here as well as to discuss this landmark album that came out, as I said, July 28th, 1992. Um, where did, uh, let's start with where we first heard the album. Uh, if it was the first time that we'd heard the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, Michelle, we'll start with you. I was in Toronto watching Much Music and it was the eve of the release of their second album, Maybe You Should Drive, but Much Music was still playing the heck out of the first album, and the first thing I saw was uh, Be My Yoko Ono. The video, you mean? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen any of their videos. Mom? So, yeah, I know. I'm, I know. That's why I'm hosting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, um, so, okay. So that led you to, like, I have to buy this album? Yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, now I know that, did you buy in Toronto? Because I know that the CD that you have is the first album cover. I don't remember where I got the CD. I don't think I brought it home from Toronto. I brought some other ones home from Toronto. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, 
Yeah, because you were into the Rio Statics and Spirit of the West yeah, and was, Tragically Hip. That and- was the summer I exited from popular music <laughs> and went totally into Todd Rodgren and Canadian stuff and never looked back. Yeah, well, there was a lot of good stuff being made there, too. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of that in the influences, too. But uh, uh, Cornflake, what about you? When did you first hear this album? Was it the first time that you'd heard Bare Naked Ladies? Oh, no, but I will say so enamored was I with the Bare Naked Ladies in the mid to late 90s that... To my prom, I wore a green dress that wasn't really green. Uh, <laughs> kind of, if you looked at well, it in the right cool. light, it was that kind of bluish cruel, green you know? because a real green dress would have been cruel. And I also <laughs> threw craft macaroni when everybody else was throwing their hat at graduation. <laughs> and, um, interestingly, Man, I wish I had known about Gordon in 1992, but I found Maybe You Should Drive first because some of the local radio stations were playing it. I think the first album of theirs I purchased was Born on a Pirate Ship. And Ah. then Rock Spectacle came out. And then somebody said, I think it was a friend of mine, hey, did you know that they have this album, Gordon? And that was like a bonus for me. But five years later, I found out about it as I was slowly growing into a super fan. The, uh, my understanding is that, um, I mean, they were a slow burn here in the States, right? I don't know if Gordon was really a big hit in the States right away. And it wasn't until, I think, um, the live album, right? That kind of introduced yeah. a lot of songs, a lot of the songs that are on Gordon to American audiences. Rock spectacle. Yeah. But I will. I am so fortunate to have lived in the Boston area where there were these great alternative radio stations. I credit uh, the River 92.5, which is oh, still yeah. on the air today. They would have the Bare Naked Ladies live in the studio before anybody knew who they were. And I remember getting a Sunday afternoon off from work the very first time they performed live in studio just so I could listen to the River because I had heard Jane. It's like, oh, this is like nothing I've never heard before. And then Oh, my goodness. If I had a million dollars, that has been a favorite of mine ever since. So much so that I do occasionally write a comedy or a parody song. And I have written a parody of If I Had a Million Dollars called If I Had a Dating Profile. So needless to say, uh, I was really glad to have heard. Kevin get along. I really (laughs) (laughs) I am. uh, Gordon, for me, like. Like I said, I wish I had known about it sooner, but when I discovered it after Maybe You Should Drive, Born on a Pirate Ship, Rock Spectacle, it felt like this wonderful little surprise bonus just for me. Mm, nice, nice. Uh, Ricky, what about you? For me, it was, I believe, immediately when it came out in 92, uh, my roommate and drummer at the time, Bob, was a huge, huge Rush fan. We both were. And because the song Grade Nine had so many <laughs> Rush nods, uh, we both got the album. And, and that was sort of our introduction to the Bare Naked Ladies. But um, that very quickly became just a nice song on the album and not my favorite. Uh, there are so many great songs on the album that I liked the album as a whole so much at the time. I. I think we both used to play it a lot. So it, I was pretty early on a fan of the album. Um, I wasn't really listening to the radio anyway, so I have no idea if they were playing it in the United States or not. But uh, just the the Rush references in grade nine were what drew us in. And then the other great songs were what kept us listening. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Mike, what about you? Um, with Ricky, I'm pretty much 
close to the same time period. I was already living in Seattle at the time and the radio station there, which is called the mountain, um, which was the, one of the, like, they were the they were like more of the mainstream alternative radio stations. You know, they were already starting playing grunge and everything and a lot of it. But all of a sudden you heard this song called Brian Wilson. And I was like, well, what is this? This is so different from anything I was listening to. And I call actually called the DJ at the station. Who are these people? What are they? And they said, they're bare naked ladies. And it's like, the ba you know, literally, and it's like, it's like, but it's guys. It's like, it's like no, <laughs> but they're clothed and they're, they're guys. What? Exactly. And most of them I wouldn't want to see naked. So it makes it even better. And it was just, it was interesting. So the guy told me, you know, they have it tower, you know, go check out the album. Gordon. It is, he, he was raving about the album to me. And so I drove to Bellevue and I went cut um, the cd of it and literally played it from the very beginning and played it from the beginning and played it from the beginning over and over and literally you know fell in love with it and every single track on that really spoke to me at the time you know grade nine you know talking about staying up watching uh wrath of Khan, you know everything with that and it's you know box set and my yoko ono and brian wilson and of course you know if I had a million dollars and then they, how they wrap up crazy at the end with the beginning of the first song, literally it's like, so they're going back again. And that's what made it just so amazing. And then I was lucky enough to get to see them. They played the crocodile cafe in Seattle. Probably it had to be early 2003 and I got to see them and then they disappeared. I didn't hear anything else. From them until I heard old apartment. And then it was like, oh, they're still around, bare naked. And so it was awesome to be able to get hooked up with some old friends again, it felt like. And I've been a fan ever since. Yeah, for, like I said, for me, it's uh it wasn't quite like I didn't connect with it as much. I can remember I don't know if it was the first bare naked lady song I ever heard, but I can remember hanging out with Michelle and she was playing the album. And it must have been the first song, which was Hello City. And I instantly recognized, I'm like, hey, they're, they're covering the House Martins, um, which as a band, I love the House Martins. Um, and there's a lot of like similarities with, uh, these two quite bands. Quite a few of I those think. songs, actually. Huh? Quite a few of the songs are homages to other bands. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, but I was like, you know, I was taken aback. I was like, wow, this is like the, the they're covering the house Martins. Um, uh, cause that's a song. I, I mean, that, that was a track I hadn't thought of in maybe almost 10 years, <laughs> but, um, cause that was, yeah, it was, it was in the eighties. Um, but, um, yeah. So I liked them. I think, I think. With all the other Canadian bands Michelle was listening to, I think the Bare Naked Lady stood out more to me um, than the others. Um, and I, I, their their harmonies, uh, as well as their sense of humor, uh, that just the sense of fun that they had uh, recording, I think, um, and their songs were so much fun and so, like, made you smile. I think uh, I was attracted to them, but not enough to, like, you know, become a huge fan or anything, but I did follow them and, like, 
every once in a while, I'd like a, a song of theirs. And then, like I said, I haven't heard the whole album in its entirety until this past week. <laughs> After I listened to it, I, t- I told myself, like, wow, that's a really long album. <laughs> I mean, for the time, 15 tracks is a lot, right? Like, that's a pretty big album. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it was cut down from 20. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, and it was interesting, too, because especially for a debut album, and it was just awesome. And, you know, you could they, you could find now stuff they recorded earlier together, but this is where they really come together as a band, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, Although think- their, their previous uh, independently released cassette had gone platinum when this came out. Yeah, the yeah. yellow tape. The yellow tape is pretty awesome. Yeah, so they, as Michelle explained to me, yes, they they had already had a lot of that material. I think that's one of the things that people forget about when when artists have that first album and it's huge, and then they go into the second album and sometimes it's not as huge because the first album they have like sometimes years to work on these songs, work through them and know what works, and then you know finally lay them down on an album. And then when they do the second one, they're like, they have to like rush and come up with like a lot of material all at once. And it's uh, not as polished, it seems like. Oh, yeah, definitely. The um, so uh, so I guess we'll talk about I mean, yeah, we'll talk about some of the songs. Um, I guess maybe if there's a specific specific song that you want to talk about, uh Cornflake, as far as like your favorite or something that means a lot to you or just one that stands out to you in particular. Oh, favorites. That's, that's hard. Yeah, I, like I figured the that would be a hard one. sound yeah, yeah. of this album. And I like the fact that there's such an assortment. There's so much variety to it that it's like, I feel like I need to have a happy, upbeat song and, and a happy or a favorite serious song. But I love, um, wrap your arms around me. I just, uh, I know that that's like really serious and, and not a light song at all, but I, I love the chord arrangement. I love Stephen Page singing in it. And um, really, I, I guess for happiest fun song on there. Mm. Brian Wilson is not fun, but it is upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> and, so it would be, oh, would it be Hello City or Grade 9 or Enid or Brian Wilson? Oh, it's so hard to decide. But um, yeah, it would probably be Brian Wilson is the song that sticks with me in terms of being like more energy, more upbeat and uh, lyrically and um, topic wise, unlike anything else that was playing on the radio at the time, even when the 90s got super eclectic. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was really listening to it this time was even though a lot of the songs sound really light and high energy and uh, there's even a sense of humor, there's sort of a underlying darkness through some Bare naked ladies can be dark. And a lot <laughs> yeah, of- there is an undercurrent. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. much so. <laughs> and I think yep. I appreciated that about them because they, they weren't saccharine sweet, but they... Um, they didn't they didn't talk down to us or they didn't sing down to us as an audience they they came to us really holistically in terms of what they were thinking about even when it was dark and i appreciated that about them you gonna follow up with that (laughs) (laughs) only band i can think of has not one but at least two catchy songs about violent stalkers um (laughs) not on this album though um 
Yeah, uh, starting with Wrap Your Arms Around Me. I mean, the the themes that they would continue throughout their career are all here. Uh, love in the Bare Naked Ladies universe is not moon, June, and flowers. It's uh, it's a standoff. It's tension. It's at at, at the best of times, I think. And, and, a lot of reminiscing, also. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Love songs. Yeah. Like a lot of love lost in their songs. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, looking back on it and their history of, you know, my past relationships and such, you hear that in a lot of Bare Naked Lady songs. Yeah, there's, uh, you have to forgive me, but I know that there's one track in particular uh, on this album that, I think one of the the lead is is talking about um how he's apologizing for like hitting his uh his yeah. his girlfriend. Arms around. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 And I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. You know there's trouble in the relationship when somebody says, "Do you want to play mind games?" Well, that's fine. Go ahead. La la la. I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> that's in blame it on me. What do you mean? That's my relationship with Judy for years. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning Not on so your much. best days. Come on. <laughs> We're learning so much. Um, any other songs or tracks that you want to bring out and mention? Um, oh, I, lo- I do love Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson is just like this gem that's, that stands on its own. It's so beautiful and for me, it always conjures up. Um, they talk about the late night record shop. It always conjures up going to Sam the Record Man on Young Street in Toronto and the, the iconic spinning turntable neon sign. And it's just totally fused together in my mind and makes me smile. Um, God, so much good stuff on the, on this album. Um, the flag. Um, again, Love as as a detente. No one no one has won the war. Just exquisite, and I love the harmonies on unwrap your arms around me. Mm-hmm. Those just get you every time. The harmonies are really incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening, especially listening to it on my you know news uh, new noise canceling headphones or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this sounds really really awesome. Um, yeah, that and it was easy to see like why they stood out at the time. Cause I don't, I can't recall anybody who was doing anything like this in the early nineties. Yeah. The harmonies always remind me of my, my dad's old Kingston trio records. <laughs> but, <clears throat> excuse me. But some of the tracks are, are like almost country songs. Like they, like they, they have this sort of pop spin on country as well. Um, I wish I could remember the names of uh, the one I was thinking of in specifically, but I think it was towards the end of the album, but crazy. Uh, crazy yes. sounds a little country. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ricky, what about you? Well, obviously Brian Wilson is a standout, I think for, for just about everyone. And for me, the opening line drove downtown in the rain, nine thirty on a Tuesday night, just to check out the late night record shop was so like, uh, kind of a part of my life at the time. I remember we had uh, Turtles Rhythm and Views mm-hmm. that was open late. And I just remember going down there at night looking for new music. And 
the the idea of being a songwriter who relates to Brian Wilson, who's you know one of the greatest songwriters of all time, by thinking, "Hey, I'm just lying in bed like this other famous guy." Hmm. Uh, that really struck a chord with me as well. Um, and the entire song box set and the way that it's laid out about how the first CD on the box set is all the songs that everybody knows. And then everything else is just kind of like, wait, why are you releasing this? (laughs) It, it struck me as so true because I, I bought way too many box sets around that period (laughs) of time. And so often you'd get a box set and listen to it and think, wow, that first CD of all of their hits really is amazing. And everything else that I bought that I've never heard before, I probably could have gone the rest of my life without hearing. And the way they describe that on box set is just beautiful to me. No punches um, are held. That's right. And then and, the, bl- uh, the blank disc because of the other label has the other song. <laughs> right. Which I love. I love that. <laughs> And uh, out. <laughs> if I had a million dollars is just it's it's so for lack of a, a more articulate way of saying this, it's just such a cute song. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure most of us at one point or another have wished that we had enough money that we could live our lives the way we want and eat Dijon ketchup. <laughs> the finest ketchup. Fancy ketchup. <laughs> Pre-wrapped bacon. So I, I, there, I, there are just so many different types of great songs on one album that it's it's uh it's held up over the years for me. I think it uh it almost is uh when I was listening this time this time to if I had a million dollars, I was like, oh, this is almost a little dated because a million dollars really wouldn't make you that wealthy these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that's make true. Me happy though, but but the concept <laughs> still holds true. Yes, you know the the idea behind it. Even if you take away the dollar amount, yeah. If I if I had enough money, I could buy your love. Mm-hmm. And I'd buy I you do, a house. Just in general, the message <laughs> being, I'd do something really nice for you if I had a million dollars, which is mm-hmm. sweet in terms of um, a love song that really isn't otherwise a love song when you listen to the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> it's, um, right. It is a catalog of things, but that is what brings it together as an endearing love song. Well, exactly. You know, and who wants a K car anymore? Come on. (laughs) A nice, reliant automobile. (laughs) And I think we can all relate to wanting a nice, reliant automobile. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But haven't you always wanted a monkey? (laughs) Always. Always wanted a monkey. Hmm. Well, a few years later, they'd be getting them in the mail, right? (laughs) Another postcard. Damn postcards. Uh, Mike, what about you? What are, what are tracks that, uh, speak to you on the album? Oh, well, grade nine was to me, that was me growing up literally, you know, cause that was my era, you know, you know, telling everyone, oh yeah, I like Duran Duran. I, I like that, that band. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. You know, and not doing my homework because I stayed up and watched, you know, Wrath of Khan on VHS all night, you know, like three or four times, you know, it, and it, it hit. It really, really hits on with me. Um, I also loved how frantic the King of Bedside Manor was. 
and everything because it's just like da, 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 da. and then you know even when they go into you know mr roboto in that mm-hmm. song and everything right. okay what else are they going to pull out it's just like it's it's just awesome and you know i love enid the the thought of you know having you know a cousin who had a really cute friend and you know being in love with her and you know her not noticing you because you were the creepy little kid you know who hung out with them and everything and it was awesome and there's just so many but you know, Brian Wilson is the one that melted on it. And, you know, especially when I went back and re-listened to this when I was going through my divorce and I was pretty much on my own at that time. And, you know, sitting in bed, you know, listening to music and, you know, so being depressed and not wanting to get out of bed and, you know, thinking I was 300 pounds, you know, it was like literally all, all that had hit me and it was pretty amazing when you think about it and how at different times in your life, these songs talk to you a different way also, you know, that's that's really true. And so it, especially on this album, there's so much, you know, and you know, the feel when you, this album opens with hello city with the horns and everything. And it's just like, what is this? This is awesome. And, you know, it sounds like you're almost listening to a Glenn Miller album or something. And it, it's just awesome. How, you know, it just takes you into it. And each song is a different adventure. And it's just, it's, it's great. There's not one track on this album that I don't like and that I can't listen to over and over again. Relating to your point about how the songs mean different things at different times, I think the older I get, the more the flag really resonates with me. Just Mm -hmm. the idea that nobody really wins. Mm-mm. It's, exactly. It's just when the album first came out, I liked the song, but over years of experience, there's just so much more to that sentiment now. And uh, I think the songs have aged well, at least for me. I think the flag was ahead of its time. When I mentally cataloged different bare naked ladies songs for different albums, for whatever reason, I always think that that was on everything to everyone. And then I look back and I go, oh, wait, no, that was Gordon. That was one of their first offerings to the world. Right. And so I hear you there. It does seem mature for their first major label debut. And how young they were at the time yeah. <laughs> on top of it. So it's it was just interesting to see. And it's it's neat, too, because like how Ricky said, you know, the flag means something else, blame it on me, you know, and, you know, depending where you are in your life, different words mean something. And this one really does. And it was kind of ironic after I watched let it, the documentary, let it be. And then, you know, get back and for the Beatles, listening to be my Yoko Ono hit really well on that. It's true. What's interesting to me about that song is it's so pro be that person that messes up everything else in my life. Just <laughs> be that important to me. Uh, I've, I've always been in the minority feeling like Yoko Ono really wasn't as involved with breaking up the Beatles as she's so often credited. And uh, so I think for me, the song 
may have been a little bit uh, different in meaning because I kind of, even at the time, I felt like it had more to do with Paul McCartney wanting a different manager than John Lennon than it had to do with Yoko Ono. But just the idea of, I don't care what it does to the rest of my life. I just want that person who means everything to me is something that I think most people can relate to at least at some point in their life. It's it's sort of like that meme uh, that goes around uh, sort of like um, saying like, find someone who looks at you the way Yoko looks at John, right? <laughs> <laughs> don't blame it on Yoki. <laughs> we haven't really mentioned the new kid on the block song. Yeah, and awesome. when I heard this album, I, I just, just to go through like a little bit of a progression prior to bare naked ladies, my favorite bands were rush and crowded house prior to rush and crowded house. It was of course the new kids on the block when I was a kid. And I know that they are not specifically mentioning just NKOTB in this song, but it was a little bit of an eye opener because the way that they described uh, like a, teeny bopper band like that is just not the way I looked at new kids on the block at all when I was a fan of theirs. I was like, wow, that's uh that's skewering right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's harsh. Still like my Boston boys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are uh I did notice that as well listening to the whole album in its entirety as how they weren't afraid to name drop and 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 let the chips fall where they may um not only like in the in the titles or in the songs like with Yoko Ono or with Brian Wilson but also with uh using um clips of like we said the House Martins Rush Sticks we've already mentioned that um yeah they're they're just uh really really go for it I would hate to be the guy at the record label who had to get clearance for all that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's like hey we're canadian they won't go after us come on <laughs> we're too nice <laughs> but I, I know it's it's interesting because i know that michelle's always been a rush fan and i know that ricky's always been a rush fan and now uh cornflake you're you know you told me that now i am not a huge rush fan but not because i don't hate them i just am not like i'm just not that connected with them like other people are like you guys are um, but with this album, is the influence like really apparent? Um, because you know, you guys all like Rush and you all love this album. Is it, is it a direct connection or sort of an indirect connection there? For me, it was direct with grade nine and that's what brought me in. But every other song on the album doesn't feel motivated or inspired by Rush at all. Yeah, it fits more sound wise with the sound of the 90s than any sound that you would credit to rush which is largely 70s and 80s i would agree say. completely on that yeah i think you know it just happens rush just happened to fit in there more than anything well i i you know i know from doing a little bit of research that Obviously, Rush was, I mean, I guess you can't be Canadian and Rush not be an influence, right? <laughs> um, uh, you can't, uh, and I did read, I think, um, that they are currently working with, uh, one of the members of Rush on a project now. 
Oh, wow. Um, so I don't know if that's still true or how, the, I don't know any more details than that, but that's Inquiring all I think. want to know. <laughs> I think that's all what uh, Wikipedia was able to tell me and, you know, take that with a grain of salt. So, I mean, it's, it might not have been something that actually worked out or whatever. I don't know, but um what other influences do you see? Do you do you find that there's other bands that are out there that are direct influences that you can find of this of a especially this album? Ooh, I guess that's I, a good made question. You, made you made you think a little bit. because i think i think even though this does sort of have a 90s sound to it an early 90s sound i think it's because they came out then and i associate the 90s with them i don't think there was anything like this coming out at the time no Uh, and if you ask stephen page because i was just watching a youtube uh stephen page performing gordon in its entirety before we got on the panel tonight to discuss them. And if you ask him, this this Gordon album has an 80s sound to it, which I think is interesting. I don't know that I agree with that sentiment, but <laughs> how can you disagree with the guy that wrote the songs? He thinks that uh, the overall sound of Gordon was made um, kind of like lovingly made in the image of music from the 80s, but I don't know that I see it. Hmm. Um, well, all, the, all those cassettes were late 80s, so those songs mm. are literally from the 80s. Very true. Was it Ed Robertson uh, heavily influenced by country music? Yes. Yep. So I would think that his influences would be dramatically different, at least from most of what I listened to, because the country music that I listened to was from the 70s. That was what my father listened to. So I really couldn't speak much about the influence of country music from the 80s or even early 90s. I just wasn't as familiar with it. There was a element, I mean, we were talking earlier about how the songs, at least on the surface, sound pretty light and energetic and poppy. And yet they have a lot of dark undertones. And there was a lot of that going on in the 80s with a lot of the big hits. I mean, you look at Every Breath You Take and you look at Luca and you look at like, there was a lot of like, um, like what Midnight Oil was doing. There was a lot of songs that were like talking about like some really serious issues and they were really poppy. They were still hitting like the top five or whatever. So I I guess I could see that trend maybe continuing Mm. on with the Bare Naked Ladies. I'd agree with that. Yeah, that is true. At first glance, it feels like Gordon is so different of a record to me than what was going on. Um, I know in the early 90s, uh, record labels were so confused about what people wanted that even I was getting offers in the early 90s. (laughs) Obviously, they had no idea what people wanted because it wasn't anything I was doing. So. I I do think that you had a lot of bands who might not otherwise have ever been on a major label just because record labels were so confused. I mean, I can't imagine Primus coming out at any other time besides Mm. the early 90s. I can't imagine Faith No More having any kind of success at another time. And I can't imagine Bare Naked Ladies... uh, starting their major label career at another point in time. Isn't this also around the time, like the rise of grunge in Seattle? Oh, definitely. 
Well, actually, grunge started probably like two years before that. Right, you know, but it's I'm, around the same time, It, it right? did, but it was September of 91 when Smells Like Teen Spirit premiered on MTV. True. So it, it would have been right around September of 91 that MTV changed its format from being hair metal to grunge. It was a pretty, pretty quick change, actually. Yeah, and 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 that's you know, and then that started like really catching on and flooding the market with a lot of bands coming out of that. Um, and this is definitely not that. Yeah, <laughs> right? it was yeah. it was refreshing to hear something that was a little pop, a little country, and also thanks to the Cregan brothers, I would say a little jazz. Oh, very yeah. much so. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because that's what I was just thinking: is each track is style wise different and. They each one is almost like its own world in itself. And that's one of the things I loved it. And with all the doom and gloom that you had with grunge playing at the time and basically, you know, all across the, the board at that time, it was nice to hear the bare naked ladies who were a lot brighter, but also a lot more diverse in right. the different styles they pulled in and everything, which was kind of cool. I, I don't know that we heard them on mainstream radio or saw them on MTV, but I remember 91, 92, the songs that were on the radio were things like Beck's Loser and uh, Nine Inch Nails, mm-hmm. entire album about a breakup. Um, there, there was a lot of just dark stuff. Uh, pretty much everything Pearl Jam was doing at the time. Soundgarden. Uh, it's strange to think that Nirvana might have been some of the lightest stuff <laughs> that was played at the time. Yeah, at least in in the grunge genre. There, that was also a time when I think Extreme was popular. I think of Wholehearted and oh, that's what, true. Um, Belle Biv DeVoe and Color Me Bad. And uh, there was a lot of R&B music at the time, too. And Bare Naked Lady sounded completely different from that as well. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they really stood on. Is that uh, with the advent of grunge and all of that? Is that what made you turn to Canadian music the show? <laughs> I think that was part of it. Just r- around 94, around the time I went to Toronto, music was hard for me. It wasn't feeling natural to me anymore. It was, It just wasn't speaking to me. And I discovered this other stuff and it was much better. With um, because I I believe that the uh, the uh, producer of this album also worked with the Rio Statics, worked with Spirit of the West, worked. I mean, I mean, he had the Canadian sound down. Yeah, maybe the Canadian sound is largely part to him. Uh, owes a lot to him. Um, was there like does this fit in with what was going on there? With if you compare it to like Spirit of the West and Rio Statics and Tragically Hip. Is this kind of fit in more with that scene? I am not sure if I can accurately speak to what the Toronto scene was at the time because I listened to what my friend Gordon listened to. <laughs> he gave me everything. So <laughs> I absorbed Gordon's tastes. Certainly, Stephen Page credits the hip with how the Bare Naked Ladies sound came together. Yeah. No, totally see it. Totally see it. And it's interesting too because, you know, years later, probably like 
next six, seven years, you know, I felt like when, you know, when we came out and some of their newer stuff, it felt like they became even more poppy away from what they had captured in this first album. Yeah, they went more of a people pleasing route as a band overall. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that not everyone in the band agreed with that approach, but they're like, we're on to something. Let's make the most of it. Was yeah. Stephen Page still with the band when they recorded one week? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Stephen yeah. Page, Stephen Page was with them until mid to thousands i think or oh so. wow i think, yeah. I think it was 2000, 2008 2008 2008 2009 and yeah. what's crazy is when stunt came out i was still sheltered enough in my own little world to think well, most people don't know who the bare naked ladies are yet so i will go into boston where newberry comics is going to have their release of stunt and i'm sure there'll be a few people around that are fans that are going to want to go see them live for their free show that was the show in boston that they had to move to city hall plaza and eighty thousand people turned out and it's just crazy to think that in that time i i would talk to friends i'd get like my closest friends, I would get them into the bare naked ladies. I'm like, you got to hear this band. They're amazing. But I thought nobody else knew about them. And then lo and behold, I remember them up on their stage at city hall plaza singing about how there were 40,000 people there, but from aerial estimates, I mean, there was not enough room for people to stand. People were in the trees because you're out of room on like standing on the pavement to see this band. So I think, I think it surprised everyone when they suddenly realized, Oh, wait, Everybody else likes this band too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think, uh, you know, compared to the other bands that we mentioned that were like becoming huge in Canada at the time, um, the Bareneck and Ladies were the ones probably more than any of the others that crossed over to the United States and hit it much bigger, um, than any of the, I think they're like the biggest Canadian band to come out. Well, well biggest band to come out of Canada in like 30 years, right? Mm. They were having fun during that grunge period. They were having fun in a way that a lot of people weren't. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody else was was uh, mosh pitting and and then yeah. crying in agony over grunge. And these guys are just like, we're just here to have a good time. And if you were mm-hmm. maybe like me and a Weird Al fan, you were like, oh, well, good, thank goodness there are a few other bands that we can still have fun with while everybody is <laughs> hating the world. And these guys had such a great sense of humor about everything. And that's what was awesome about it. And they were geeks. They were geeks. That, like, the speaking part in Gordon, if I had had a million dollars, that would then be different in Rock Spectacle and then would be different every time they played it. When they did it on the river, they did, like, a, like, mix with Kenny Rogers, the, the gambler. And, um, just, I, I think, if I remember it correctly, other bands realized how much fun that was to do that and embraced that improv spirit for their live shows after the, the Bare Naked Ladies did it. I didn't see any other performers that I liked doing it before then. They were very true to the album sound when they performed. Mm. The uh, only other band I can think of that really had that improvisational spirit was Weezer. Oh, good point. Yes, uh, yes, very much I so. know... I saw Weezer probably on their first tour for the Blue Album. And uh, they if this was planned, it was planned extremely well. 
and uh, they definitely didn't seem like they had planned it at all, but they decided spur of the moment to do a cover that none of them knew. And it went horribly wrong and I loved it. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure the rest of the audience loved it as much as I did, but I thought it was wonderful <laughs> to see a band playing at a giant amphitheater in front of thousands of people just acting like they're playing at somebody's house party <laughs> and not giving a crap. I mean, it, it, it was great. But what? there really wasn't a lot of that. Shows seemed very planned out at that time. It, it does seem something that, Ricky, that uh, I've seen you do on almost every, like, vent, every time I've seen you in one of your bands play. It seems like there's that, that spirit of improv that's there as well. Well, part of that's because I'm a terrible musician and can't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. But, but, but part of it is I really do feel like we approach every show like somebody's parents are out of town for the weekend. And so we, <laughs> we hauled all our stuff to their house to, to play a show, whether the children of those parents want us there or not. So there's, <laughs> there's really not a lot of uh, pre-planning goes into our performances. Now, as far as, because uh, I know you've done a lot of uh, covers, have you covered any of the tracks on this album? And if so, is there anything, uh, or maybe you you haven't because it's some of it's too tricky. I don't know. Um, we never have. A lot of the covers that we do are just based on people's requests. Mm -hmm. And somebody will say, hey, you should cover this song. And uh, I'll try terribly to cover it at the time and make a fool of myself and then I'll go home and learn it. Um, and nobody's ever requested the bare naked ladies with the possible exception of one week, which I would just, I don't know the words well enough to even attempt it. There are a lot of lyrics in that song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are. Uh, or is it a matter of, uh, well, I mean, just looking at the songs and musically, um, are the tracks deceptively simple? We um, talked about other bands doing that and other artists doing that as well as the Bare Naked Ladies that as well. I think uh, with the jazz influences that they they throw into a lot of the songs, I think the songs would be more challenging than a lot of people might think to pull off live, uh, with, especially without practicing them. <laughs> You know, there, there are some bands that have hit songs that I, I can just throw together in a few seconds and sound reasonably close. I think it would be tough to do that with most songs by the Bare Naked Ladies. I think uh, there's a lot more going on in these songs than, than your average hit. Mm -hmm. yeah, Maybe like What a Good Boy. That might be the easiest one, I yeah. think, on the album to cover. That might be. Yeah, I think I think um speaking as a non-musician, I think their chops are probably really underrated and those jazzy arrangements being propelled by Cregan's bass playing. His bass playing is just phenomenal to me. Oh, that um, that's definitely some impressive bass playing. Yeah. And it was amazing too to see that he was using a stand-up bass at the time, not he an electric me, bass. 
want more stand-up bass in the world of music in the 90s. And sadly, I was largely deprived. I, I got I got a little bit out of Jim's Big Ego, just local Boston band, but there was not much outside of that. No, I can't imagine. I, I, I am trying to blank is trying to think of any other band that utilizes Jim that. Cregan well, made me want it. it. It was amazing, too, because early rock and roll, you had a lot of stand-up bass. Sure. And you know, and up until like the early 60s and then electric bass took over big time. And then you started getting it back in the 90s, starting with Bare Naked Ladies was one of the first. And it was neat to see because also I listened to a lot of Americana music and, you know, like Newgrass and a lot of stuff like that. And it's everywhere, you know, with the hmm. stand up. And it's awesome. And what made me almost want to pick it up. I've actually really started considering learning how to play a stand-up bass and everything. It's just like one of those things to like, okay. And Judy's like, sure, we can't afford one, but you can go, you know, take a class and I'll have it there. And good luck toting it around. Yeah. yeah. But mainstream music I found was like sadly bereft of stand-up bass. Mm, mm. It's much harder to play stand-up bass than it is to play electric bass. Can you believe that? I yeah. can definitely believe that. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think the only other time I've seen a stand-up bass live is when we saw Lee Rocker uh, from the Stray Cats. Yeah. Right? Because that's mm-hmm. what he, 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 that's his thing. Of cho- yeah. That's his instrument of choice, I think. Yes. Um, and and like you said, Mike, that's a throwback to an earlier era, for sure. Oh, of course, with rockabilly and everything. Sure, yeah. that's yeah. totally throwbacks. And that's really cool. And it was neat. Because other than Steven, you only lost one other member from that era. You know, you, um, the keyboard. Jim Cregan. Yeah, left the band. And probably about four years later. And it's just, and I wonder if he's kicking himself right before they get really big. You know, of course. I heard that's why, in the research I did, I heard that's why he left. Because he was yeah, like, he you guys are getting a little too, we're getting too big. too big. We're too big. Yeah. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he wanted to keep it, keep a low profile. You can tell it too because Andy at the 2018 Juno Awards, Andy thanked Jim and Jim was out in the audience and the camera went to Jim and Jim did not look sad to be out in the audience and not in the middle of all, all of the pandemonium. Like yeah. he, he looked like he, like for his own personal well being, chose well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in the Canadian Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Michelle, as the uh, American <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame person that we usually talk about them, has there been mention of the Bare Naked Ladies to I be entered have somehow? Not heard or seen any in the in the blogging circles. Gotcha. So if they popped up on a nomination list, you would be pretty surprised. I would be. Gotcha. Delighted, but surprised. I was going to say delighted, but surprised. Right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, we could make a case, maybe. Oh, that would be nice if we could, because my fellow host of the Flopcast, Kevin Eldridge, um, it, whenever I talk about how great it would be for the Baron and Keith ladies to be in the American Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame, his um, his response to that is, you know, cornflake, don't hold your breath. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hate I hate to say it, but I think it would be a very hard sell. Yep, gotcha. the hall. there's gotcha. so many American bands or you know yeah. Oh, yeah. English bands that have not ever even been nominated yet so yeah bare naked ladies and indigo girls i will never stop hoping (laughs) 
Uh, Ricky, have you seen the Bare Naked Ladies live? I have never seen them live, no. Okay, so, um, unfor- yeah, that's unfortunate because uh, uh, Michelle and I went, uh, saw them at the Fox. What was that? What year was that? Uh, 98, the stunt tour. 98, the stunt tour. Fun show. Uh, very I think fun. we were some of the oldest people there. Probably, <laughs> probably. Uh, that would be a trend that would continue the rest of our lives. No, just <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't really true this weekend, but, um, uh, but, um, they were a good show. Um, even though I wasn't as familiar with the material, it was a fun show and they high energy banter on stage. And when they, you know, whatever was going on behind the scenes, they left it, they leave it behind the scenes, right? They don't, uh, they, they seem to have a lot of fun doing what they do on, on stage. I got to see them before they were playing stadiums, got to see them when they were a bar band. Um, I wasn't supposed to. I wasn't old enough to get into the I was going to say, what, were you 12 or something? (laughs) (laughs) You're too kind. Let's just say I wasn't 21, but um, I forgot my ID and they still... Like I was like, well, you know, I'm not interested in drinking anyway. And at that time, they let me in. It was this small, small little bar in Western wow. Mass, and um, it was the school night. And <laughs> I still went to school the next day, very, very tired. Uh, I uh, remember just the people were were drinking and talking over the band. The odds opened for them. Stephen Page still works with Northy from The Odds, but I, I found I liked The Odds that night. I remember somebody behind me spilling a beer on my head and spilling <laughs> beer for days. But my, uh, my date and I were there to not just drink and have a good time. We were there specifically to see the band and then just what a difference it would be one years later with 80,000 people out in city hall plaza. It happened really fast. Yeah. Um, now over the years, I would imagine that they still, there's a, there's a pretty big number of songs that they, uh, from Gordon that they include in their set, right? There must be right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And, um, singing parts for Stephen Page now that he's with the band no longer have been taken over by other members of the band. It seems primarily Andy and Kevin and then Ed when he can. And does that, does that, can you feel the difference? Does it, does it, Oh yes. Yeah. Sometimes they even change the key for it um, uh, to, to fit whoever is singing. So that ends up for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just my ears that do this, but it ends up, having a different feeling when the song's in a different key. But yeah, they, it is not too original form. Yeah. Ed well, doesn't have the edge in his voice that Stephen does. He's got the sweet. Yeah, exactly. Sweet and it's tone. interesting too. A lot of times now when they do, you know, when they tour, they actually have like for like Brian Wilson. And cause that was a big Stephen song and they have the, like one of the guests or one of the people who played open for them um play with them and sing Stephen's role and everything and it's interesting like when we saw them last uh kt turnstall did it and um the time before that i think it was actually it was howard jones who did it wow wow that is really cool i loved that So, uh... so so it's pretty cool oh one thing if i could just interject absolutely um I started thinking about Hall of Fame. The Songwriters Hall of Fame is even weirder than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as far as the mind-boggling people who are excluded, Prince, 
um, George Michael. Um, but I, the songwriting for Bare Naked Ladies, I think Paige and Robertson um, both should be in because it, you're hard pressed to find more intricate wordplay mm-hmm. and topical variety and breadth of style than you will find in their catalog. They, they used to play so well with each other too. Yeah. It was always nice. If you ever get a chance on YouTube, they did the bathroom sessions. And yes, those are fun. Those are a ton of fun. And, and it's just Ed and Steven. And it's it's tons of tons of fun. But while we're on the topic of Gordon, were we going to cover the fact that this album had not one but two different covers? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I did, I, that's that's why I asked Michelle. I said I know that. Uh, that's why I thought she might have got it in Toronto because when she she her CD is the first cover, uh, where they look like they're afraid of the word Gordon. Yeah, yes. where they, whereas uh, Michelle said uh, before we when we were talking about, it, she said, "Yeah, uh, that's the one they hate." <laughs> yes, and you know what the funny thing is is the artists that they used, uh, nice guys according to the band, but they came out with this album cover, and the band was like, "Well, we really don't like it," and the artist's response was, "Well." It's it's due tomorrow, and you didn't give us enough time, so you're stuck with it. Four years later, the band was like, okay, this this album is really getting sold now. Could we have a different album cover? And they <laughs> they ended up going back to the guys that did the original album cover, and they didn't like the second cover either. <laughs> the Pepsi logo. The Pepsi logo. I uh I will say either cover I um yeah uh unfortunately I don't think either cover really sells the fact of how good that album this is. Yeah, I did not buy this album based on the cover. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. Yeah. Um what about mention you mentioned the videos uh earlier Michelle were the how how many videos did they make of this, of this album and were they were they great videos or I don't know anything about the videos here. Because um, videos were still a thing back then, right? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, to tell the truth, I haven't watched a lot of these on video. Um, there's performance videos. I think they were fairly low budget. They've they've had quite a few from this yes. album, actually. They, yeah, but we, they did. Um, was it for? I think it was Enid or Be My Yoko Ono. They did a. Uh, a video for exactly $1 and it was up against videos in the countdown that were hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was yeah. still, you just, you, all you could see are the guy's heads. Speak. And occasionally since there's not enough room for them, they're kind of like yeah. pushing their way in and it became one of the pop most popular videos. Yeah, that helped them get their, their record deal. Much music had a thing called Speaker's Corner and they had a booth with a video camera on, on the street in downtown Toronto outside the Much Music Studios. Right. And they crammed all these guys into this little booth and and did it. And Much Music was like, hey, this is cheap and we can we can use this. Yes. And they did. Yeah, they did. And yeah. it helped it helped get them the grant um that got them the label deal with Sire. Yeah. To get to work with Michael Philip Voyevoda. Yeah, um, probably they have probably at least half the songs of most have videos to it. Are they good videos? Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, because, you know, I've seen the Yoko Ono one. I've seen 
uh, the Brian Wilson one. I've seen, you know, I've seen if I had a million dollars, I've, you know, I've seen it a few different other ones too. And they're, they're fun and they're, they were produced for the album. It's not them live and everything. They were actual music videos. Wow. Now I want to go find those and see them. Same because I didn't start seeing music videos from the bare naked ladies until born on a pirate ship. And you watch it and you see, and you look at them and go, God, they were babies. then. (laughs) Bare naked babies. I'm not sure. I, I want to see the songs illustrated. To be honest, I've had them in, in my head without images for so long, I think I might want to keep them that way. Same way. I was always dreaming up something while listening to them on my Sony disc playing Walkman. It would be tough to improve upon the version of Brian Wilson that I see in my head. Mm -hmm. The, uh, well, at the risk of disturbing any imagery you have with the album, I do, I do understand while they were recording this, that at least one track, maybe possibly two, they recorded while they were absolutely naked. Who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, this is just me for my, you know, and, standard uh, operating <laughs> procedure. And, and That's from, how what, from what I understand, it's a, from what I understand, it's a, it's a tradition that they keep with, uh, I guess, their, all their follow-up albums as well. I don't know if they still do. I, I heard that for at least a while. Yeah, uh, I think Bedside Manor was the one from this album. Yes. Yeah, I don't know either, and I'd be reluctant to pry. That seems like a weird question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you still record naked? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is in their name, right? Bare naked, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be sort of out of place. That out of oh, place. and did that cause some trouble for me because my prized possession was my long sleeve tee, red, bare naked ladies, and I went to a Catholic private school, and I would oh. wear that shirt on the dress down days and. Oh, I would hear about it and be like, but they're clothed in their guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I guess, uh, I guess on the one hand, it's what they would use, you know, it gets them attention. Uh, you know, come hey, see It's kind of like naming yourself free wings and beer. Exactly. Put, right. Tonight, free wings and beer. <laughs> I heard that they early on, they lost a show that had been booked because the city decided that the name was inappropriate. Yep. And the press that they got from losing that show was some of the biggest press they'd ever had to date. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it ended up helping the band in the long run. Absolutely. I could see that. I could see that. Um, all right. So uh, I'm uh, according to Newsweek, uh, they no longer record a track naked. Okay. Well, they're getting older, so I can understand. <laughs> um, um, all right. So. The Bare Naked Ladies album, Gordon, I know we all talk, I mean, we've all talked about how much we love it and how influential it is for us personally. As far as follow-ups from the Bare Naked Ladies, um, is there anything that even comes close? No, not for me. (laughs) Time marches on. I don't know that they, even if they could write songs like these, we'd appreciate them today the way we appreciated them in the 90s. They've had some great songs here and there, but I don't know that any of their albums have been as great as this one. Right. It'll be one, two, maybe three songs off the album are great listen and fun to listen to and, and clever. But it's not like you listen to the whole album like you did with Gordon and then maybe a couple of the albums after that, not with their newer stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I love Odds Are 
came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's for music videos. That's a funny music video. That's a good one. But oh, yeah. can't say I liked, what was that? That was the Silver Ball album. I forget what they called it. And I listened to the rest of the album and it, it seemed kind of, seems kind of watered down. But then again, I mean, I'm listening to Gordon today and I'm appreciating it more than I did even when I found it in, in 1997. I was so chuffed. Maybe I'll go back and listen to the stuff that the Bare Naked Ladies are releasing now and feel different about it later. Who's to say? Yeah. I mean, uh, it is amazing rediscovering uh, some of these songs. And, and like I said, some of them might just be out of their time, right? Either a, a, mm-hmm. so. But it's um, interesting too, though, Mikey, because, you know, Stunt was hugely popular. Huge. Like, Cornflake said, it was interesting that you got, you know, 80,000 people, you know, when they were supposed to be playing inside a comic shop, you know, and it was, you know, they were everywhere for so long and probably they ran with that. And that's what brought them more to the American eye than and to the people of the world than Gordon did. Or mm-hmm. any of the albums leading up to Stunt. And, you know, it was, it was just amazing to see how they exploded. And I was happy for them and anything. But when I listened to Stunt, there was maybe four songs on it that really touched me. Other than that, it was just like, I couldn't even name them off the top of my head the rest of the. But the fact There's- that a band can come up with this kind of album does mean that, or does sort of imply that, you know, it does make it interesting. It's like, they have that potential to do it again at some point. So it is always on the table, right? It is always interesting. Like you want to pay attention to what they're doing. And when they come out with stuff, because you're like, maybe. I'm not mm. sure without Paige. Uh, yeah, that's just Paige. it. So there's a theatric it, element, right? Yeah. What? Well, I, th- I think of Stephen Page as kind of the Lindsay Buckingham. Lindsay Buckingham mm. and Fleetwood Mac was the the vinegar that tempered the sugar of Christine McVie and the, the ethereal stuff of Stevie <laughs> Nicks. And um, Stephen was the the dark side to Ed's humor. I mean, Stephen was humor, but but Ed was like the the slightly frothier of the two, mm-hmm. I think. And I Stephen think tempered that down. It's also difficult to find a band that's been around for a while that puts out a great album later in their career. I mean, mm. you had uh, the wedding album come out from Duran Duran, mm. and that was a long time into their career and a beautiful album. But that's in the minority of albums that I can think of for a band that's been around for you know more than a decade who puts out a beautiful album. You two did it, I think, with uh, Octung Baby. But that almost felt like, I mean, that album almost didn't even come out. Mm-hmm. That just sort of came together at the last minute. But there's so few bands that are around for really long periods of time still putting out entire great albums. I think there are a lot of bands that put out great songs, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's tough to put together an entire album of great music when you've already released five or 10 albums. They need to team up. I think, I think of the bare naked ladies now as like a chocolate chip cookie missing their 
bittersweet morsels without <laughs> Steve Page. It's yeah. that's a good very idea. good metaphor. It's a I good treat, but awesome. it's um the the taste isn't balanced. But who's to say that the bare naked ladies won't collaborate with somebody that will bring back that right. element that you know it's something that balances the saccharin and um, also just adds there's just kind of like this big theatrical world with Stephen Page that um, makes it so that whatever song is is being written has a world beyond what's normal day to day so I think it could happen but it would take some pretty extraordinary circumstances yeah that makes a lot of sense very much well, so. in the meantime we have this gem of an album which I strongly encourage people to check out despite the cover either one <laughs> um, and uh, if you haven't listened to it if you're only familiar with a few songs off the greatest hits album or whatever uh, do yourself a favor and get this whole album download it Spotify it whatever you need to do listen to the whole uh, album of Gordon because you won't regret it it's everything like you guys said everything is a gem on here so um, thanks so much for uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the album with us and uh, we will be right back and we're going to close out the show and if I phoned my friends in Ireland I have my own radio talk show and I'd talk to myself and if I filmed my sister walking I'd yell stuff like hey get off the Gordon Gordon yeah Gordon King Gordon at the 42 cast we want to bring you everything and that's why we've jam-packed the next few months with as much as we can. You not only get the same reviews, topics, and interviews that you did before, you also get screen reads where we compare a movie to its source material, or role models where we talk about tabletop gaming. It's never been a more exciting time to check out our show. It's your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything, so why not check it out? We can be found on most podcasting platforms, and we are a proud member of the ESO Network. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about the Miss Marvel TV show. Miss Marvel was one of the Disney Plus shows I was most excited for when they announced their Phase 4 lineup, and this show did not disappoint, in my opinion. Everything from the acting, the story, to the music, it all flowed and went together so well. I heard a lot of complaints that was that this was too much of a teenager type show. But to me, it really felt like a coming of age Spider-Man story almost in tone. So I don't understand why people who love the Spider-Man films are complaining about this show. My only real complaint was that Miss Marvel's villains for this show were very generic. Yeah, they were bad, but... They didn't really do much, and in the end, they kind of tried to redeem themselves by helping close the rift. So if anything, that would be my only complaint. But everything that happened in this show helped Kamala grow to become the superhero that we will see her be in the Marvels. I also loved how family and chosen family are handled in this show. They show a family that is flawed, that needs to learn to communicate better, as well as Kamala's chosen family, her friends. You can tell the characters love each other and want to be there, and their internal struggles were so well shown through these actors in all the episodes. Kamala's culture was handled so well in this show, showing an American Pakistani girl who loves her Pakistani culture, but is also not quite a part of it when she visits Pakistan with her mother, like wearing jeans everywhere and not being able to go into some restaurants because of that. But the theme of being yourself and learning to love who you are is 
shown so much in every episode, and it's something that really, really spoke to me. I really cannot wait to see more of Miss Marvel in the coming Marvel Universe. I am so, so excited to see what they do with her. And I really, really, really hope at some point she gets Lockjaw, because I love the two of them together in the comics, and I want to see that on the television screen, the big screen, wherever. I just want to see her and Lockjaw together. Thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. It's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. I want to thank our guests for being here. Kristen, you made it. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you, as always, and thank you for hopping out of Chicken Town and joining us to talk about some music. It was awesome. Oh, I can't shut up about the Naked Ladies, so it was an honor to be invited. That's pretty much how Kevin described it when he said, we got to get you on the show. Well, I'm just glad that I think the station is safe from being burned down for now. Um, for now. For now. Yeah, for now. for now. For now. You know, we keep on telling J.D. to hide the flammable stuff, but, you know, it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work, but... You, anything you want to promote or talk about? Well, I would love to let everyone know about Flopcast.net. We have the Flopcast with myself and Kevin as part of the ESO Network weekly podcast. Runs about 30 minutes and a lot of geek talk and nostalgia every week just for you. Yay! It's a great podcast, folks. It is. And, you know, Kevin comes up here, but I think everyone should know because, you know, Kristen talked about it and, you know, she's going like, Listen, so we got to listen to her because she will burn down the station if we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and Ricky, My power is perceiving me. <laughs> of course. Your reputation, too. Oh, there you go. And Ricky, thank you, sir. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. It's always nice that somebody listens to me ramble. Oh, <laughs> dude, it's always fun talking about rambling. And, you know, speaking of rambling, do you have any shows coming up? Uh... I'm sure we do. Bambi's not here with a calendar, and you know how clueless I am, so <laughs> I, I am of no use to anyone. Um, our, our calendar is, I think, on Facebook, uh, Facebook slash Radio Cult, and that lets people know where all of our various bands are playing and when. I'm pretty sure we have shows coming up. There you go. Just look for it, folks. And a radio cult show is almost as good as going to the Bare Naked Ladies, if not sometimes better. Well, there you go. I seriously doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> trying to build you up, my friend. Just trying. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Ricky, you have a show on July 30th at <laughs> 11 in the morning that's a private event, apparently. Oh, good Lord. That's early. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing up at that hour? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> that, that's all I can find on your Facebook. Wow. <laughs> so, so if you want to go to a private event. Yeah. Crash the private event, everybody. Exactly. And Michelle, anything you want to shout out about or anything? Uh, on iconicrocktalkshow.wordpress.com, I will have uh, a written Valentine to Bare Naked Ladies Gordon uh, coming out to coincide with this. Excellent. Nice. Excellent. God, it's still weird to think that came out 30 years ago and and I'm that old now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think of myself as that old, so it's even better. And Mr. Mike, we made it through another one, my friend. 
We did. And as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of music and, uh, bands that have played with the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, Michelle and I had, uh, the good fortune of seeing Howard Jones play on Friday night at the Buckhead Theater. Uh, had mid-year opening for him as well. Um, I had been, I had not seen Howard Jones since 1985. Uh, wow. I saw him. I saw him at the Worcester Centrum in 1985. It was the uh, uh, I don't know what tour it was, but it was a big show. Obviously, he was in the Centrum, and uh, it was a big event. I think it was the second uh, concert I ever went to in my entire life. But so it had been a long time. A lot of water under the bridge. We had a lot of catching up to do. Uh, but uh, man, I don't think I'm going to forget this show anytime soon. Uh, Howard brings the energy. He brings the fun. He brings the positivity, has one of the best stage performance light shows I've ever seen any artist use. Um, the music is there. He sounds great. Um, it's just a really wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, it's a great night out I, and it's going to leave you smiling. Anybody out there, um, you, you, when you, when you go to the show, you'll, you'll forget how many Howard Jones songs, you know, like mm-hmm. there's just a ton of them out there. Uh, there were some that popped up that I didn't even remember. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, that's his, um, uh, plus, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get a little gaja goo goo. You'll get a lot of, you'll get a little bit of band aid. You'll get a little bit of something else. Like he is not afraid to, uh, to do other covers and have fun on stage. Um, really great guy. And, uh, I definitely encourage people to go see him. Yeah. And, and I went for Midge. Midge is just always amazing. Doesn't disappoint. So from, from the opener to the last note, I mean, this is a show worth seeing. Yes, agreed. Oh, Midge is just awesome in concert. I saw him some how many years some years ago, so it was pretty cool. Yeah, for the, uh, if if you don't know who Midge your is, Ultravox. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. That is awesome. Glad you guys had good time going to see live concerts. Um, over the weekend, I've been focusing a lot on what's been going on in San Diego at the Comic Con. We could almost do a whole podcast on what all the news that just came out and all the trailers and all the things. But folks, we're in for some good geeky stuff. And even with Marvel, it's like, oh, maybe they're starting to let up and they're going to start slowing down. Eh, Nope, 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 nope. And they're not even telling us everything. They're waiting for D23 in September to give us like even more stuff. So it's pretty cool to see. Um, some great Star Wars stuff, some great Disney stuff, some great DC comic stuff. Some, you know, it's just, it's awesome. A lot of the trailers and we've been trying to put them up as quickly as they came out, um, up on the Facebook group for, for ESO network. So please check it out. We definitely would love you guys time, to know. First time that, uh, we've had San Diego in what, three years, two years. So, um, it came back with, um, big success as far as being newsworthy and I don't know let's just hope it's not a super spreader Ugh, actually um, not to get any into any different east or right or left or right or whatever but they basically had a mass mandate for it so people had to be masked um, to be on the floor to be in the audience and stuff but I saw pe- plenty of people took off their masks for pictures and stuff like that 
and makes me a little more worried about Dragon Con, but that's just me. So we will see with what's going on a month and a half from now. So knock on wood, things will go well. So definitely check that out, folks. Um, speaking of checking things out, please check us out next week. We are going to be back and we are looking at Stranger Things season four. You know, we might actually even play, you know, a couple songs from Metallica or, you know, some of the other bands that, you know, Kate Bush, you know, you never know. You know, talk, keeping on the music theme here, folks. See what I'm doing with that or anything. So it should be a ton of fun talking all about, you know, nothing really happened this season. So it should be a very quick episode. Mm-hmm. We're actually dedicating the whole episode or ESO next week for it. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. So please join us in. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, feedback at herstation1.com. We definitely would love to hear from you guys. Speaking of that, we actually got a piece of mail. And so, yeah, I know I was colored me shocked. So we actually got a piece of mail and we heard from a, uh, one of our listeners and it was a guy named Adam Stone wrote us. And thank you, Adam, for listening. And thank you for writing us. He said, um, I just got a chance to listen to the latest episode of ESO and I have a thought to share. First, I'd really like to say for general feedback, all of you guys do a great job with the podcast. I listen to multiple shows on the network, ESO, ESW, ESDCU, ESO Trek off the top of my head, while working as a mail carrier, and they can really help the day go on. Your Station One network are some of my go-to podcasts. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Not to mention on how inclusive the Facebook groups are, too. Even though I don't have the resume some of the other members do of the group. I feel like I can share my thoughts and ideas about something and have not have it dismissed as out of hand. We all know how, you know, anti-social social media can be sometimes. Amen, brother. <laughs> now, the thing that I just can't let go from the Thor review you guys did is a very small, tiny thing, and I don't want to seem to get on and be negative. And I know and support opinions are those of the individuals. I have to completely disagree with uh, the devil as far as Jane Foster's death and entrance into Valhalla. I feel that this involved the best decision the filmmaker made. Jane Foster did die in battle. It was her battle with cancer. I think this quietly gives subtitle, but substantial honor and acknowledgement to those who fight the disease every single day. Sorry, this is so long winded. Thanks again for all the great discussions and entertainment. Adam Stone. Adam, that was a great email. Thank you, thank you, and thank I you, thank you. I couldn't should have had a spoiler more. warning. Yeah, well, details. Um, we we spoiled, you know, the a couple of weeks back when we did our review. So, you know, if you haven't seen Thor after four, what three weeks now? You know, everyone else is spoiling it too. So, there's plenty of videos out there. So, I don't feel so bad about it. But definitely, I agree with you, um, Adam. The battle of cancer is something that. I think some of the bravest people have to deal with and, you know, it's not a pretty fight. And I think they represented it really well in the movie. So I think, you know, you caught that really well. So thank you for writing in. I do appreciate it. So that is going to wrap up the episode for tonight. Everybody. Thank you as always for listening. I want to say thank you as much 
from my bottom of my heart for listening to this episode. It was a ton of fun talking about Gordon. This was a great topic. And when we were coming up with, what do we want to talk about the next music thing? And it's like, got to do, you know, we, Mike said, hey, uh, Bare Naked Ladies, 30th anniversary of Gordon. Do you want to talk about it? And I was like, yes, yes, and yes. Thanks for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you could also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, including now TuneIn Radio and Pandora. Please subscribe and tell all of your friends about us. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, of course, Mr. Mike Gordon, Michelle Borg, Ricky Zero, and of course, Cornflake. Thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you listening, and we will see you here next time on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace and hug your loved ones, folks. That's what the best we can do. We'll see you soon. Ciao. You've been listening to the Earth Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Earth Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.